Welcome to the Crazy Love Podcast. Last week, we started a two-part sermon series from our friend in the ministry, Andy Bird of YWAM Kona. In this week's episode, Andy continues his message on the current state of evangelism and missions in the 21st century. In this powerful teaching, he explains that the way to see the next spiritual awakening in the U.S. and around the world is when the strategy of Great Commission connects to the heart of the Great Commission. So I hope you are excited this week as we listen to part two of Andy Bird's sermon entitled, The Great Commission and the Next Generation. Okay, you guys ready? Let me give you a couple scriptures on this concept, this paradigm we're talking about. And... um, and then we're going we're gonna to pray a little bit at the end of this time together, I think, just to kind of cement something before the Lord. Um, I, I referenced Romans chapter 15, but I want to take us there for just a moment. It's a very significant passage, I think, in the paradigm and the perspective God wants to release in our hearts. Um, in Romans chapter 15, Paul has never been to Rome. He's never met who he's writing to. In fact, the entire letter of Romans is sort of an introduction to Paul, which is why he kind of goes into more like theology than most of his letters because there was a lot of uh, speculations about what Paul really taught. He was controversial because of how extreme he was in his his gospel. And so he's writing to clarify what he really believes, which is why he actually outlines in Romans some really strong doctrine, you could say. He's never met them. It's an introduction. So the end, though, in Romans chapter 15, 17, uh, let's start 16, he's talking about his calling. And he says, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so he's talking about his calling, that the, the, his priestly calling, which I think is amazing. We often think of the priestly calling as ministering to God, which it is, absolutely. But there is a priestly element in ministering to people as well. And he says his, part of his priestly calling was that the Gentiles would become an offering. Little power button. Check. Oh, works there. Oh, no. We're back? Okay, we're back. Yeah. So, yeah, here we go. Verse 17, he says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, which is just awesome description of how Paul moved. He says, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, which is ridiculous. This is from Jerusalem, uh, which is in Israel, all the way through Syria, Lebanon, into Turkey, into like southern Greece and the Balkan region. He says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel in like multiple nations of the earth. That's that's Paul. Now, Paul is a he's a phenom, right? It's not like we're all going to be exactly in our, in our impact or influence like Paul, but we can all be in our ethos and our values like Paul. And I think that's the important, things here, important thing here. He says, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. He says, this is the key. Ready? This is the key. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And then this sentence, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. And this sentence is what really struck me a couple years. I was praying this actually in a prayer set, leading a prayer set, praying this. 
And this sentence really hit me where Paul says, this is why I've been hindered from coming to you. And I was asking the question, what really hindered Paul? And in Thessalonians, we see that it was actually, the, it says that the devil hindered Paul from going back to visit the Thessalonian church, right? He wanted to, he was hindered by the enemy. We also know in the book of Acts that, that the Holy Spirit redirected Paul when he wanted to go east. The Holy Spirit redirected him west. So you see it sometimes the Holy Spirit redirected Paul. At other times, the enemy hindered Paul. But in this situation, it's not the Holy Spirit or the enemy that hindered Paul. The thing in this situation that hindered Paul was his own heart to go where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. And he's saying to the Roman church... He goes, I wanted to come see you. I wrote this letter so that you would get to know me. And then he goes on to say, I am going to come see you finally, but I wanted this letter to get to you before I come so that you know my intentions and who I am and what I teach. And he says, I am going to come and I'm going to need you to take an offering for me because I'm going to go to Spain. But this little sentence really struck my heart with a simple prayer. God, raise up a people on earth who would pray, hinder me from safe Christianity and send me to where they have not yet heard. Hinder me from just going where everyone else goes and send me to the people and the places that have yet to hear the good news of Jesus. And I think that even about Kona. I know I'm in Kona on assignment. I have tried to leave Kona multiple times. Um, but I know that I know that I know that I have the word of the Lord in this season to be there. Paul and I still hope, dream someday that we would be able to spend a season among some of the least reached. Now, you know, it's short-term trips in and out, but it's mostly mobilizing and training others to go. But this passage has deeply moved in my heart to pray that a generation would be that committed to Jesus to be able to pray that prayer. Hinder me from safe Christianity. Hinder me from just enjoying Kona if I don't have an assignment to be there. Hinder me from, we don't need another believer who would work at Starbucks in Redding, California. We need another believer who would get trained out of Redding, California and get sent to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? That's not against Bethel. Bill feels the same way. This is not criticism. I'm just saying we've adopted a bit of a mentality that we heard up and have epic worship times and great meetings and great conferences. Meanwhile, 3.2 billion people are waiting for the good news of Jesus. Paul goes, I love what you're doing. It's amazing. Here's a letter to encourage you and exhort you. And I am going to come visit you. But I can't come and camp out with you. Too many have not yet heard the good news of Jesus. And I have believed that they will hear and they will see. So we know from elsewhere in Romans that how can they hear unless they are sent? You know, what does it look like for the beautiful feet to go to the places of the world that have not yet heard the good news of Jesus? So pray this and begin to pray this simple prayer. God, hinder me and send me. Hinder me and send me. Hinder me from playing it safe. Hinder me from easy Christianity and send me where people are still longing, waiting for the good news of Jesus. And again, that's why we are in East Palo Alto. And that's why I want to say it's better that you are here than that you are in Kona right now. Now, some of you in this room, some large percentage of you may have an assignment in Kona for a season. Come and staff schools. Come and get trained as a leader. Come and get equipped for what's on your life. But I would want that for most of you, you would even see Kona as a stepping stone to something that God is calling you to, right? It's a training season. I want you to go strong. 
This may be your training season here. Maybe it's a little bit longer. So by the time you launch to Portland, you're strong enough to sustain the fire of God, right? So you do need to have that strong foundation. You do need to learn to sustain the zeal. And that's where the places like Kona or the places like what this may become or a place like IHOP KC or a place like Reading, they, they, they help us grow our foundation. But we must adopt a mentality that I'm here to get a foundation so that I can be sent to the places that are waiting for the good news of Jesus. Hinder me and send me. Now I want to take you to another passage here. And I want to get to what maybe I would call the heart of the Great Commission. A lot of what we talked about in the last session is maybe at a strategic level, at a, um, at a paradigm, like a way of thinking, right? But it's so important that as we adopt a way of thinking that we don't miss the heart of Jesus in that strategy. Otherwise, we can become robotic strategists that are kind of like, you know, moving in obedience to God. But if we don't have tears in our eyes, we're missing something that is central to the Great Commission. Right? If there's not a sense of compassion and love driving us, then we might go to the right place, but with the wrong heart. Or we could be, a, we're, gonna, we're not going to make it, right? We're going to burn out. We're going to be a little robotic in that setting. And I, I remember um, one, one of my um, passions is history. And it's like kind of nerd personal hobby, not like a real historian, none of that. Like just a, I love history. In the last 20 years, I've done my best to have a regular diet of revival history, reformation history, missions history. My favorite books are biographies. They're just absolutely everything that I love. We just got a dog and I told my kids they could name it Asbury after Francis Asbury. They could name it Churchill after Winston Churchill. They could name it Finney after Charles Finney. I gave them lots of options. Uh, Ernest Shackleton, one of the greatest explorers in history. I didn't let my kids come up with any dog name options because uh, I know I'm a controlling dad, but they was gonna be like Fluffy or I don't know, some terrible dog name, right? Yeah, no, we couldn't do that. So I gave them a few other options as well, and they picked Remington, which is the you know, greatest rifle manufacturer in history, which works as well. <clears throat> so, but uh, I, I love history, and I have been reading a bunch um, on the Moravians, and particularly you know, on Count Zinzendorf and what happened out of that, this little tiny town in Germany, the Great Missions Movement, which really helped birth the Protestant Missions Movement, the Great Prayer Movement that pretty much every prayer movement since has taken in its, its inspiration from. This little Moravian movement is more remarkable than most realize because pretty much every missions movement since 1750 and every prairie, praying movement since 1750 has taken its inspiration from the Moravians. So you talk, talk to IHOP, you talk to any missions movement, you talk to any prayer movement, they almost all draw their roots back to at least a major element of inspiration back to the Moravians. And I had read a bunch, but I went to Herrenhut to visit for the first time, where this all happened. It's this tiny little town. Most Germans have never even heard of it. Little, it's, it's, it has one restaurant in the entire town. It's way off the beaten path. It, it, um, you know, it had a huge, um, insane asylum. That's what it was kind of known for, was a whole bunch of people that lived in this insane asylum. It burnt down. And so everyone had to move out into these you know, little homes in the community, and they never rebuilt it. So there's just a, there's a bunch of people that live in the town that, that have literally have lots of mental health issues, and they're wandering the streets, and it's a very interesting place. And then there's a thriving YWAM base there in the middle of nowhere, right? It's classic, classic YWAM. I don't even know how it happens. And I went there to visit, and um, I walked up to the hillside where I knew that Zinzendorf had stood with this young man named Christian David when they looked at nothing but a forest of trees, and they had a dream in their hearts that out of this forest 
could come one of the greatest unity movements that the church had experienced. They, they believed for what they called the unitus fraturum, which was the unity of the brotherhood. And they believed that the, the, these denominations and divisions that were already coming out of the Protestant movement could actually live together in unity. And if they did, that they could actually reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Zinzendorf had an encounter when he was 17 years old around a painting that had marked his life. And he is, they stood together now years later, actually not that many, Zinzendorf was 22, on this hillside. They looked over this forest with a dream in their heart. And they thought to themselves, if we will walk in obedience to God, we could change history through a little patch of forest in the middle of nowhere. And they did. They cut down those trees. They built this community. A handful of movements of refugees all settled there. They had huge unity issues. They finally came together when Zinzendorf went house to house and called them all to repentance. And they celebrated their unity around communion, which is pretty cool, based on what you guys have been learning. And this was August 13, 1727. It was a famous day in history that you probably have never heard of. But really, a lot of what we're experiencing today came from that day. And that day, they had finished this repentance movement of unity out of great division in Herrenhood. Great division. So much so that there were people in Herrenhood that were calling Zinzendorf the Antichrist. They'd move into repentance. They all unify and they walk over this hill that I'm talking about to this little chapel to celebrate their unity by taking communion together. And this pastor that was officiating communion and they were going to worship... Um, you know, he serves communion, they go into worship, and this is what they would write later. They said, in heaven or out of heaven, we did not know. And they began to write about how the heavens opened up over this little communion feast as they celebrated the Eucharist together and they worshiped together. They went late into the night, and from that day forward, they referred to it as the Moravian Pentecost. From that day on, they would find kids, seven, eight years old, out in the fields, weeping and repenting of their sins. It was a few days later that under conviction, they started this 24-hour prayer chain. And that prayer chain, 24 hours a day, two people would pray for an hour. They would get the next people. They would pray for an hour all through the night, all through the day, to the point where eventually there were dozens every hour. Throughout the day, they would set aside their work, and they would go out to the forest in these little rock uh, circles, and they would pray for their hour. Then the next group would come, and they would pray for an hour. They would wake each other up through the watches of the night, and that prayer meeting went a hundred years without breaking. A hundred years before that hundred year, that prayer meeting broke. Out of that, they start launching missionaries seven years after the Pentecost. The first ones went to the, um, to the West Indies, uh, Indies, the modern Caribbean, to reach the slaves. And they went there and catalyzed this missions movement. And others looked on, like William Carey and Hudson Taylor. And they said, if the Moravians can do it, then we can all do it. And they began to launch around the world because the Moravians catalyzed them out of their obedience. They had this famous saying that you've heard that they would sing as they would leave on the ships. And this song that the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering was a Moravian song. And all of that came out of this one moment, this Moravian Pentecost, this unity movement around communion that you can trace every prayer movement and missions movement from that day to that moment. And I stood on that hill looking at that forest with a lot of facts about the Moravians in my mind. But what struck me on the hillside that day was not the facts and not the strategy, but the heart 
of Count Zinzendorf and the heart of Christian David and the heart of Peter Bowler and the heart of these first missionaries that were willing to go anywhere in the sake of the world, the heart of a community that would get up at three in the morning to keep the fires of prayer burning in the community, the heart of a people that would get on ships with coffins because they were willing to never come home again. The heart of a people that would go anywhere no matter how difficult. And they were the first to take the gospel to Alaska, to Greenland, to huge areas of uh, East Africa. And what struck me on that hillside, again, was not what they put on a whiteboard, but it was the heart that drove them to obey Jesus to that land. That drove them and fueled that intimacy-based prayer and intercession. In those hundred years, the Protestant missions movement was birthed. The first great awakening was birthed. The second great awakening was birthed. The slave trade was abolished and slavery was abolished in every British protectorate. In a hundred years, you could argue that the greatest spiritual awakenings and the greatest societal transformation occurred in those same hundred years that they were praying without stop. And they were catalysts to it. And so what I want to end us with today, kind of leave us with, and so we talk stats and strategy, and I love that stuff, and I think it's very important that we have our eyes wide open into what's happening around us. But we've got to know that the, the, the strategy can lead us, but only the heart can lead to the breakthrough. The strategy can set our vision, but only our hearts can bring real change. Only a heart that is deeply moved by Jesus and connected to his heart and so the way that he sees the earth can actually bring real transformation and change. So I want to lead us with this scripture. It's Mark chapter 4 and 5. And to me this embodies the bullseye of what will lead this next generation into the Great Commission. It's what will fuel us. It's what will motivate us. Because we can talk about going to Seattle. But three months in when it's hard and we've been rejected a bunch of times. And, and, and five people that got saved have maybe already turned away and turned back from Jesus. We've got to have something, some fuel greater than statistics. We've got to have some fuel greater than a motivational, inspirational moment. We've got to have a heart that keeps driving us forward based on the word of the Lord and the heart of the Lord. When you're five years from now, ten years now in Afghanistan, and, and, and maybe it's hard soil and you had not near the opportunities, and you prayed for 20 sick people, and none of them got healed, you know? But you don't know you're one person away from the 21st who is going to get healed, who is going to lead to the catalytic moment that led to the disciple-making moment. And it's the heart of Jesus that's going to lead us through those hard moments, that's going to lead us through those dry spells, that's going to lead us through every wall or every obstacle that come against us. Otherwise, we operate in a form of inspired idealism that when it hits enough hardship actually ends up in unbelief. So it's an inspired idealism. It was an inspirational moment, created a burst of idealism. It wasn't totally faith because it wasn't really facing the obstacles in the face. It was idealistic. And then when it faced numerous obstacles, idealism that gets disappointed leads to disillusionment. And disillusionment leads to unbelief, right? And so then you have all these people deconstructing their faith today because they didn't have revelation of Jesus in their heart that led them past the obstacles. So they had nothing left to do but deconstruct their faith, right? And it was an idealism that led to disillusionment that leads to deconstruction through unbelief. We need to be those people. 
that are standing on the rock and the truth of the Word of God, the power of the Spirit, and the heart of God, no matter the obstacles. In one moment, we can stand on our chairs and believe that God could reach Gen Z. In one moment, we could shout in the top of our lungs that this is the generation that's going to see a move of God in Tibet. Right? We can shout with great faith and inspiration that North Korea could experience Jesus in this generation. Right? And then as we walk that out and we face the obstacles and the difficulties, we're not daunted because there's tears in our eyes over the loss. Because we're driven by a sense of compassion because our feet are firmly rooted on the rock of the word and we are empowered by the spirit of God. That is so critical to this room. Ten years from now, having more tender hearts, more tears in your eyes, greater faith than you've ever had before, no matter how many obstacles you face. Yeah. Wow. And the obstacles only fuel your faith. The discouragement only gets you more tenacious. The, the setbacks and the pushbacks only make you more press into Jesus. And that is so needed in this hour. Not just the faith-filled inspired moments but the ability to grind it out for the long haul as the breakthroughs come. Are you with me today? Yeah. So this story to me gets to the heart that drove Jesus that I think will drive us forward as we talk about all this tremendous vision that God's giving us. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching. I love this story. And um, he, he finishes teaching, and it says in verse 35, Evening had come, and he said to his disciples, Let's go to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? says they were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So here's the picture. Get the context a little bit. Remember, some percentage of the disciples are seasoned fishermen who have fished their entire lives. These guys get boats, they get water, and, uh, and they have fished their whole lives. It's night. Jesus finished teaching. He's like, I'm going to leave the crowd, and we're going to cross this lake. Now, you got to know, a furious squall is about to come, because we know the story, so much so that experienced fishermen are afraid they're going to die. Okay, so it's not little waves, not just a little storm. And that kind of storm doesn't come from nowhere. That kind of storm is visible in the distance. That kind of storm to experienced fishermen, they can feel it, they can see it. They're aware that there's a storm coming. So you got to know when they get in that boat that night, they're like, this is crazy. What are we doing? And you got to know that they got to be super weary, or even more worried, when Jesus brings a cushion says the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Even foxes had dens and birds had nests, but Jesus had no place to lay his head. But on this trip, Jesus brings a cushion, which should have been a warning. Something's about to go down. Jesus got a pillow. We don't. What's happening right here? This huge storm is raging in the distance, and, um, and what, why are we getting in this boat? So sure enough, they get, I don't know, halfway through the, the sea, you know, the lake. It's dark out, and they're rowing through the night, and then this massive storm hits, so much so that seasoned fishermen are like, we're dead. We're going to die out here. Jesus is sleeping on his pillow. 
They wake him up. We're going to die. You know, what, what are you going to do? And Jesus is like, man, you still don't believe who I am. He rebukes the wind and the waves and, and says, and he goes, oh, why are you so afraid? And you got to love this. He rebukes the wind and the wave. And he says, why are you so afraid? He rebukes him and it says, and they were terrified. <laughs> so not only are they, you know, afraid of dying. Now they're even more terrified that this man rebuked the winds and the waves and it's calm seas. They're just fear at every level. They're like, who is this guy? Firstly, he's insane. He led us into a giant storm in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. And now he calms the waves. Who is this man with this great power? Now, you think if you're a disciple, the story actually is about to get even worse. Because it says they crossed the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came to him from the tombs to meet him. So if you're a disciple, you're like, first of all, this was a little crazy, crossing the storm in the middle of the night, and now we land in a graveyard in a Gentile region, and the hardest part in the entire New Testament is our welcoming party. The most challenging life that you see in the entire New Testament is the one who welcomes them. So as a disciple, you're just sort of got to be wondering at this point, who is Jesus and is he crazy? It says, the man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him up anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. So you got to know this is an impossible situation. This is the man that comes up to them when they get off the boat, finally relieved that they made it through the night. And this guy walks up to them, apparently the only guy that walks up to him. Why? Because he's alone in the tombs. He's like the greatest impossible situation in the New Testament. Nobody knew what to do with him, so they had chained him to the tombs. He broke the chains. He runs around all night in the graveyard cutting himself. So imagine what this man looks like as he's walking up to Jesus and the disciples. And imagine if you're a disciple thinking, what is the strategy here? Like, we just left a massive crowd. Like, we really could have launched a dynamic ministry. Could have just launched the website, put up the brand name, and we're off to the races. Jesus and co. We're going to change the world. And instead, we left the masses in the middle of the night when we should have been sleeping. We're crossing a, a, a sea in a raging storm, and all for a graveyard. And this lunatic who has lost his mind is the seemingly the only one we've crossed this lake for. So you're wondering at this point, where is the strategy? What are we doing? Jesus has told us that he's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. We know he's, he's saying that the time is short. And seriously, we're spending an entire day on this endeavor, on this adventure. It gets worse. So this is the description of the guy. When, G, when he saw Jesus from a distance, distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now again, just put yourself as a fly on the wall as a disciple. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? You just got to go at that moment. Really? Like, you want to know his name. Like, we are afraid that we're going to die. We're already afraid we're going to die. We didn't die. Now this guy is running up to us, and you want to know his name. I just have to think of that moment. You're like, Jesus, there are a lot more important things than this guy's name right now. Like, are you going to protect us? Like, where's this going, right? Jesus asked his name, and then his answer is even more frightening. My name is Legion, for we are many. When your name is we, <laughs> I'm just saying, like that, that is just never the answer you want to hear, right? Jesus is like, what's your name? And basically goes, my name is small army of demons, like battalion of demons. That's my name. 
And as a disciple, you've got to be like, this is insane. I am definitely writing home about this. And then it says, it gets weirder. A large herd of pigs was feeding in the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirit came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. What a scene. Those tending the pigs ran off, reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well, and the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Okay? So just take this picture in, guys. Real story, real scenario, and I think it has a tremendous key for us as we look towards the greatest hour of the Great Commission in all of human history, as we look towards what God's doing in East Palo Alto, as what he's doing in these unchurched cities across America, as he's doing among the 3.2 billion that are still waiting for the gospel, and this paradigm and heart that he's releasing to his church. These guys, um, they, the, those that are hurting the pigs, they see these 2,000 pigs run in and they drown. They run to town. They're like, this is what happened. People come from town and they want to see what's happening. And they're astounded. Why? Two reasons they're shocked. One, the man who was impossible. They tried everything. They chained him to try and keep him from hurting others and himself. They, there was nothing. He was hopeless. He's sitting there. He's dressed. And he's totally restored, redeemed, and in his right mind. Secondly, all their pigs are dead. And they're looking at this scene going, this guy's healed and restored, and all of our pigs are drowned. And in essence, say to themselves, we have never seen power like this. We do not know what this is. And they don't like it. They're overwhelmed by it. This, they're like, this is strange. This is odd. And they don't set up a tent revival. They go, leave. Get out of here. Like, we don't understand you, and we don't know what happened to our pigs. You killed them all. And we don't understand how this man who we tried everything is sitting there in his right mind. We don't get it. Leave. They're afraid of him, right? And it says then that Jesus, getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. So the man's testimony creates amazement in the Decapolis, and there's tremendous fruitfulness in the future because of it. But then this last sentence, this is what got me, and this is what I felt on that hill in Herrenhood looking over that forest or that, that little town. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him and he, uh, as he was by the lake. And this is what I realized when I read this. Jesus has three and a half years to alter all of human history. He's got three and a half years to change the course of history. He's got three and a half years to write the redemptive story as God in human flesh. And you've got to know he's the most strategic and the smartest man who has ever lived. He's God in a body. So he knows every moment, every day counts. Every, every, intentional, every conversation is intentional. Everything Jesus does is intentional for the sake of the kingdom. He has this big crowd on the side of the water. Now you've got to know according to our strategy, that's the strategy. Right. <laughs> Come on. According to our way of thinking and the modern methodology across the earth, that's the strategy. 
You had the big crowd. Announce the next meeting. Keep it rolling, Jesus. You got momentum. Launch the ministry. Let's go. Commission the disciples to their own big crowds and let's roll. Yet Jesus that night goes, no, 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 I'm the smartest, I'm the most strategic, and I have the heart of God, and I only obey and do what I see my Father doing. Gets in a boat and risks his life and the disciples' life. Like, risks their lives in a furious storm to land at a graveyard with the hardest heart in the entire New Testament. Spends five minutes, I don't know how long, in a simple conversation with a couple sentences, that man is immediately set free of a legion of demons so big that 2,000 pigs were drowned. That's a lot of demons. This guy doesn't have just like one, one little bird on his wire. He's not like just got you know, a little bit of oppression on the side. You know, mom burnt his birthday cake when he was seven. He's been bitter ever since. Like, I'm not talking about that. This man has enough demonic torment going on inside of him to drown 2,000 pigs, okay? I don't know. Do the math. I don't know what that is, but it's a lot, and his name is We, okay? So there's a few in there. And in one conversation, Jesus sets him free. One moment. One conversation. No place too hard. No heart too difficult for the Son of God. Sets him free. Sitting there in his right mind. The town comes, and the disciples are thinking, this is revival. Here we go. Another crowd. Here we go. Crowd runs up. They see the pigs, and they see the man, and they're like, we don't understand you. Get out of here. Leave. The, the man himself comes up to Jesus and goes, hey, please let me go with you. And if there's anyone in the New Testament that could have used like a few more sozo moments, probably this guy. Like a few more like inner healing moments, probably this guy. Like a little more counseling, it was this guy. And Jesus goes, no, you've got a story to tell. Sends him off, and this is what's so profound to me. Jesus gets back in the boat. The crowd is afraid. They say, leave. He's like, all right, I'll leave. Gets back in the boat, crosses back over the lake again. And in that moment, you realize that Jesus' strategy is often different than our strategy. It was the heart that drove Jesus to cross a, rage, a lake in a raging storm for the hardest heart in the entire New Testament to spend an entire day of his three and a half years on the earth for that man's sake. Even knowing that the crowd was not going to turn to him when, that, when they saw that man healed. But so believing in that man's personal freedom and then his testimony down the road and the fruit that it would bear that Jesus went, this is strategic. You might not see the strategic in the Western world. You might not see the strategic in popular methodologies. You might not see it as strategic in, in the size and the scope and the bigness. You might not have written that strategy on the whiteboard, but in the kingdom of heaven, this is strategy. We cross raging storms and lakes for one heart that they would experience the love of God. And the Great Commission strategy is going to be fueled by a true Great Commission heart for the one in front of us. This is why East Palo Alto is so important. It's so important that our perspective of revival is not crowds, it's the one person in front of us. It's so important that the perspective of revival is not some big name evangelist out there who's finally gonna lead the masses to Jesus, right? Guys, if America could be saved by a great preacher and a great worship leader, it happened a long time ago. Come on, if America, finally, like, someone was going to rise up that was the great preacher and America was going to get saved. No, no, we'd have been there already. 
And we're going to finally write the great worship song that finally unifies the church and motivates them and, and a revival hits in America. That happened a long time ago. The only way we will see true Great Commission impact is if we recover the heart of the Great Commission, which was not waiting for someone else with a microphone influence and a platform to do it, but by realizing that God wants to move through every single one of us. And loving the 12-year-old in the apartment next to us. Yeah. The 17-year-old out on the soccer field that has no hope and goes home to a broken family. The 21-year-old the on that campus, that university campus that seems totally anti-Christ, but in reality is just broken on the inside and needs hope and needs love. Yeah. And that heart is what will lead Gen Z and a generation into the greatest hour of the Great Commission, not just the opportunity, not just the 3,000 the times, you know, times the finances that we, that we need, we actually have, not just 9,000 times the manpower, not just the knowledge of 3.2 billion people still waiting for the gospel, but tears for the one in front of us, passion for the one in front of us, a willingness to go through any obstacle for the one who is still waiting for the gospel. That's the heart that will drive us. And I remember reading the story of when these two young men in Hernhood, that one of them had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the slaves crying out from the, from the modern Caribbean, from the Caribbean today. And they were crying out for the gospel. And he woke up from the dream, and his name was, his name was Alexander Dober. And he said, who's going to go? Like, they're crying out. He had a dream. And he goes to Zinzendorf and goes, I, we've got to go. We've had this Moravian Pentecost. We have this great unity. We have this great prayer. This was seven years after that. He goes, but there are so many that have never heard the good news of Jesus. And Zinzendorf already had this in his heart. And Zinzendorf said to them, he goes, do you realize you might have to sell yourself into slavery to reach them? And the, 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 the story goes out that they did. They didn't. But they knew they might have to. And in that moment, Alexander, young Alexander said, I'm willing to sell myself into slavery if that's the cost of reaching them. And they went off, him and one other, they go off on a ship, and it tells the story of the morning, early in the morning, they get up, and they had no money, had nothing. They had what they were wearing, and they prepared a, a couple meals for them they could put in their little backpacks, and it talks about the early morning, they came to Zinzendorf's home, he laid hands on and commissioned them, and when they walked down that dirt road with nothing in their pockets but a couple meals, they had no idea that their obedience would lead to us sitting in this tent today. But it was the heart that drove them down that dusty path that day for the sake of the one they had had a dream about but never met who was still waiting for the good news of Jesus. This always drove the strategy of Jesus was the heart of Jesus. And what will drive us into the future, what will lead us into church planting accelerators that really could reach the least and un most unchurched cities of America, what can lead to East Palo Alto having a true move of God, what can lead to Afghanistan continuing its move of God, and what can lead to North Africa experience maybe in many places its first move of God is going to be a whole bunch of people that have the mind of Christ but also have the heart of Christ driving them with a sense of love, a sense of compassion, a sense of desire to go anywhere for the sake of the one. It won't be the masses. It won't be big microphones. It won't be people with big Instagram followings. It'll be a whole bunch of regular people that are willing to go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. And that is the heart 
that I think that God wants to release that will lead us forward. I'll end with this. Um, one, a moment for me that, again, was very defining. We went on this first trek um, to Nepal where we were pioneering this uh, Bible distribution. And um, it was the first time that Dax had come up. Many of you guys know Dax and his vision and was like, I think we should start targeting these areas that have never had the Bible before. And we should um, start training with RTC to get fit enough to get out there. And let's just see if we could do it. And so there's about 13 of us that signed up on that first one and said, we're going to go for it. And my dad was with us. My dad was like 70 at the time. My son Asher was with us. I think he was 9 or 10. And then about 13, Johnny Gillespie and Blake and Tiger and Dax and a lot of people you know. And I, uh, we, we found this real remote area we were going to fly to, and then we were going to trek and, and do this pilot project. Do people want the Bible? Will they read it? What format can they take it in? Do they, do they all know Nepali in these remote regions? It was pioneering. And uh, we flew uh, to Kathmandu, and then we flew to this super sketchy little airport in the middle of nowhere. Have any of you guys been to Jumla? Anyone in here? So this crazy little airport, and that plane, uh, Johnny's a pilot, and when we're in that little plane getting out there, he's like, this is a miracle. He's like, half the instruments don't even work on the instrument panel. Um, it was a miracle, but he's like, surely these are the greatest pilots in the world because they fly in the Himalayas, right? We land on this ultra sketchy little runway in the middle of nowhere, and we're like, where in the world are we? And then we start trekking the next day, and we don't know where this village is. We don't know how far it is. We know the name of it. We keep stopping Nepalis and asking, and it was so funny. It was classic. You'd stop one, and they'd be like, it's two hours. And you're like, yes, we're close. Then you stop the next one, they're like, oh, it's two days. We're like, two days? We're never going to make it. And, and we're like, you know, we've got heavy backpacks, and some of these guys, you guys, you know, some of you guys know Tiger and Blake. I mean, these guys are fit. And, and we're, we're just, um, we're pushing our way up this mountain. There's nothing more discouraging than like your legs are burning, your lungs are burning. And then like a 75-year-old Nepali woman in flip-flops with a bag of rice on her head. And like one child strapped on the front and one on the back passes you going up the hill. And you're like, I worked for months. Do you know how many squats I did so that I could do this? Do you know how many stinking weighted lunges we did so that we could make it up this mountain? And here's this 70-year-old woman just balancing seeing a bag of rice and flip-flops passing us going up the mountain and we keep thinking we're getting to like this village but we and, and to this mountain pass because it's all uphill and uh we, there's this super demonic thing called uh, false summits and it's when you think you're at the top and then you realize you're not and you don't realize it till you get to the top so you're like we're almost there you will finally crest the past, and you're like, oh my lord, we're not even halfway there. There's the top, right? And we're hitting like two or three of these false summits. Everyone's even higher. And we finally get to like the final summit. And we're looking down for the first time, and we see the village in the distance. And it's like, you know, half mile down in this beautiful, lush, green valley with giant Himalayan mountains all around us. And there was a few of us that had gone ahead, my dad, myself, Jeremy, Asher, to give ourselves a little bit more time. I wasn't sure how my dad would do. Little did we know my dad was probably crushed it more than any of us and because uh, he's such a tank. And then Asher was just like literally running the entire time, having so much fun. So we're up there early, and we finally get up there. Sun is setting, whole day trekking to get to this village. It's so far from the nearest village that we had last left. And I look down, and there are six homes in this little village. I mean, it is so small. It's this tiny little group, and they're all touching. They're all like one after the other. Six little homes. And we hike down to that village. We show the Jesus film on the side of one of their walls. They've never heard the name of Jesus before. 
watching their shock as this man who had done all these miracles and had shown so much love and compassion is then killed by the very ones that he had healed. And seeing it through the eyes of someone who had never seen the good news before was like made it all new again because it can become so commonplace to us. Watching their hearts respond and it was stunning. And, and then we gave Bibles out to all of them. None of them could read. So it was all audio Bibles in Nepali. They were so grateful. Prayed for them. Uh, slept that night in their homes. Like, in, and ma'am, I tell you, that blanket was a living organism. I don't know what was in it, but it was alive. It crawled. Like, there was so much stuff in that blanket, it was somehow alive. It was gross, guys. But awesome, every bit of it. And uh, the next morning, we wake up, and um, we're with this man in that village, in the home that we stayed in. And I'll never forget him, because he had one of those faces where... Um, when you smile, your whole face smiles. Have you seen those people? It's like their, their eyebrows turn to a smile, their eyes turn to a smile, their chin smiles, like just everything smiles, this giant smile. And I'll, I'll never forget his face because of that. And um, we gave him an audio Bible, we fast forwarded to a certain story, he's listening to it, he's lighting up as he's hearing the love of Jesus. We share the love of Jesus with him, we pray for him. Our goal is not to get him to pray a prayer, because in those settings, well, what good does that really do, you know, if, if someone can't walk with him? We want to plant gospel seeds that are going to lead to long-term fruitfulness, right? But we're not trying to get him to just pray a simple prayer in that moment, because we're about to hike to the next village. We are going to send follow-up teams, and maybe they're going to be the ones to walk with him and disciple him, and maybe he will really turn his life to Jesus. So we have an amazing moment, and then we go on with our hike. And what I felt, I'll never forget when I looked down on that village for the first time, flew from Kona, flew to that Jumwa, hiked all day, you know, heavy backpacks, all the emotion, all for those six homes. And I felt in that moment when I looked down on that village that I had one iota, and I'm not, I'm not I mean one tiny little drop of the heart of Jesus that was willing to leave the splendor and the glories of heaven to become a man and dwell among us for the sake of reaching the one in front of him. That not only did that man leave the glories and the splendor of heaven, clothe himself in frail humanity, but then even in his frail humanity, he did what most humans are not willing to do. Even God in a human body, if it wasn't enough that he would take on flesh, so humbled himself that he said, and me, God in a human body, I will cross a lake in a raging storm. For the hardest heart in the New Testament. So that I can have one conversation, set the man free, and get back in the boat and cross over again. If it wasn't enough that he became a man, he became the most humble of men. But in that, he showed us the way to the heart of the Great Commission, leading a generation into perhaps the greatest hour of fruitfulness in human history. And it was a year later that that team, that we were back in Kona... And the guys who had funded all the Bibles, they wanted to do a follow-up and find out if it was worth funding our Bibles, right? Because we handed out thousands of Bibles because we started sending Kona teams for that whole next year. And they're like, hey, we just want to go and find the testimonies and stories. Was this really amazing? So they sent a team of photographers and journalists, and they hiked the same trails we did to capture the stories, and they were blown away. They would meet people on the trail, stop because they were foreigners, and they'd start talking through a translator, and they'd go, hey, a, a team of foreigners came to our village. And a man born blind was healed when that team came and prayed for him. We want, we want to follow this Jesus. Can you tell us more? Like they were stunned. It was literally like out of the book of Acts. They were blown away. This happened numerous times. 
And so they come back and they print their magazine for all their donors to say, like, keep giving money because look what's happening when we distribute Bibles. They're sharing the testimony, testimonies of it. So Dax comes in one day. It's a year after we've been there, throws this magazine down on the, on the table where I'm in. He goes, Andy, you'll never believe this. And I look at the cover of the magazine, and it's the man whose face smiles on the cover. And I'm like, no way. I know that smile anywhere. That's the man whose home we stayed in, right? And I open the article, and I begin to read it. After we had left, he had kept listening to his audio Bible. On his own, decided that Hinduism was not the way, and decided he wanted to follow Jesus. So as an older man, he hikes to the village we had started in, finds some believers so that they can begin to disciple him, and happens to find the very church where we had stockpiled all of our extra Bibles. And the photo of the man on the cover of the magazine was him with a giant smile and a huge basket of Bibles on his back because now he's trekking Bibles into the entire region, sharing the good news of Jesus. And I was stunned when I saw this, but again, God dropping revelation that in the bigness and the scope of what we're believing for to not forget about the one in front of us. Because that's the strategy to the 3.2 billion is enough ones reached with the good news of Jesus. As you're here in East Palo Alto, as you're dreaming about the future, that we would never despise the day of small beginnings, I would say to you that the kingdom always starts small. Why? Because it's what the Bible says. It's a mustard seed that grows to a giant tree. It's a little bit of leaven that scatters through the entire batch of dough. And guys, it's 120, which anyone today would consider a small, insignificant church, is the church that Jesus left behind. So if you want to say that numbers determine success, then Jesus was a failure. He left behind a church of 120, and no one would be following him on Instagram if he had a church of 120. He had disciples. He only had 12 and one committed suicide. That's not great discipleship according to us. One of your disciples ends his own life, right? That, that you look at Jesus and you go, in our modern strategy, he wasn't successful. But according to eternity, he's the most successful man that ever lived. Not only by his work on the cross, of course, which only he could do, but even by the way that he walked out the Great Commission. He picks 12. He leaves 120 behind. He finds the one, the woman caught in adultery, the man, the demoniac on the other side that everyone had written off, Zacchaeus in the tree. He's always finding the one. Why? Because that's how the kingdom always starts. And we have to move away from a strategy that thinks the kingdom is about masses, the kingdom is about crowds. I don't have much influence. Nobody really follows me. I don't have, you know, I, I'm not on preachers and sneakers. I don't have this big, like, you know, uh, all these people watching me. Friends, that's not how the kingdom grows. The kingdom grows because we found one person. They encountered Jesus. They found another person who encountered Jesus. They found another one who encountered Jesus. And the strategy of the Great Commission connected to the heart of the Great Commission is the way we will see a true spiritual awakening in America and in the nations of the earth. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Crazy Love Podcast. We will see you next week with a new episode. But until then, for more resources from Crazy Love Ministries or to support the work of Crazy Love, please visit our website at crazylove.org. Thanks.